0: I felt that last night I was walking through like the busy restaurant of everyone else with their masks off with my mask on and I don't think there's any evidence that anyone has been uh, infected by the toilet
1: plume which I am scared of oh there was that idea that Covid actually is in your faeces and you could potentially yeah. get it by sitting on the toilet so well it is in your faeces and they can measure it in,
0: in sewage uh, sewage measurement they can measure Covid rates but I don't know if there's any evidence that it has come out of the toilet and infected someone
1: Welcome to The PIM Factory, the Addams Within shoes podcast. My name is Matthew Lash from the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my co-host and I head of program, Samuel Pryor, as well as Dr. Stuart Ritchie, lecturer at King's College London and author of science fictions. This week, we'll be discussing The Great Unlocking, Vaccine Patents and COVID Fictions. This marks the biggest easing of lockdown since last year, with the restaurants and pubs reopening indoors and the likes of museums, theatres, concert halls and sports stadiums throwing open their doors. But the Indian variant is, much like the skies above London, pouring cold water over optimism with Prime Minister Boris Johnson calling for a heavy dose of caution. How concerned are we about the emergence of the Indian variant? Shu, why don't we start with you?
0: I'm a bit um, unsatisfied by the evidence that we've been given so far. So the, the big thing that you've heard over and over and over again from the health secretary and from, from the prime minister and various people is that the majority of people who are in hospital in Bolton, where there's this outbreak of the Indian variant, had refused the vaccine. But it turns out, if you look at the numbers, you know there are 19 people in hospital. I think five have had one dose of the vaccine and one has had two doses. It's just such a small number that I'm not sure we can really make any conclusions about like whether the vaccine works against this or not. I think the implication that we're meant to be taking is that you know you must get your vaccine and all, all that sort of stuff so I don't, I don't think anyone's saying that that it's a that it's a vaccine escape variant which is which is very reassuring because i think the uh, the south african variant is the one that is much more worrying in in, in that context but it's it, it's kind of being used as a kind of a final reminder to that you must get your vaccine now i think that's a great thing and obviously people need to be reminded of that but i'm i'm not super um convinced about the you know just just from what we can what we can draw from these numbers at the moment however it does seem that if the modeling is correct and it, it spreads with you know 40 50 percent higher rate than the than the previous variants that we've had then there's going to be lots of people who have not been offered the vaccine yet who it's going to spread uh, among and it, and you know obviously those people are less likely to be uh, affected I, I, I you know i i'm i'm kind of um I'm not as worried as I could be about this particular variant because of the you know because of the vaccinations that we've that we've had
1: yeah I, I think that's um in a sense if i'm going to scale this as almost like a, a medium rare concern um, rather than a, right. a steaming hot fully done steak kind of concern um, <laughs> about the variant and that's that's because it is substantially more transmissible, but at the same time from from both the kind of lab studies from the University of Oxford from Cambridge, if there's a few Indian studies there's a German study, it seems like antibodies. Um, created by vaccination, do respond strongly enough to this variant to prevent severe illness um, and and hospitalisation and death in in almost all cases. What it doesn't seem to do is necessarily prevent people from getting mild illness. So there's that risk of it spreading amongst people who are vaccinated, reaching people who the vaccine doesn't necessarily work that effectively for, or people who are unvaccinated and reaching and spreading and then Uh, As a result, leading to a a number of deaths amongst those kind of immunosuppressed or older people who don't have a strong reaction to vaccine, And, and not just that, not just that, but
0: if you're letting it spread among people, you're you're again increasing the chances that another variant will appear
1: that's how this came about in the first place, really. So you do have that underlying risk, but at the same time, it's not scaring me. And and I don't know about you, Daniel, but I'm feeling that there isn't much of a need to necessarily delay withdrawing lockdown, whilst at the same time taking this variant quite seriously and trying to limit its spread.
2: Yeah, there was certainly an an initial kind of worry there would need to be some sort of impact on the the lockdown schedule. And obviously, you know, this stuff is still going on and, and more information might emerge that that might change that but the thing that's been really interesting for me is that it seems like already there's a kind of at least in the political sense a, a kind of blame game being played at the moment and on, it's kind of feeding into the a, a sort of culture war where on the one hand you've got people who are trying to to blame those who who basically aren't getting vaccinated for for various reasons that kind of refusing to get vaccinated and you see that obviously with the case of Bolton but also there's a story in the times this morning um at the time of recording talking about adults in their 40s in scotland as well who were uh, worried about getting the astrazeneca vaccine for various reasons and there's kind of one faction that's trying to pin the blame on, on that for any potential kind of fallout from this indian variant and then on the other hand you've got obviously the by now i think fairly well-known story about how the prime minister refused to put india on the travel red list um ostensibly because of concerns about getting a trade deal until the last possible moment. So you've, you've kind of got the, these two competing narratives right now in the media as to who's to who's to blame should this end up being more of an issue that we thought it would
1: be. Call me a classic, but aren't they both to blame? Like, I mean, the, the fundamental error of the prime minister in terms of both waiting forever to put India on on the list and then giving people another three days to enter the country without going into hotel quarantine, and on top of that, the fact that Indian arrivals still mix at airports with people who are non-Indian arrivals. So there's a huge, huge risk at airports that continues to this day, um, and isn't being discussed enough. Whilst at the same time, um, vaccine refuse also to blame, I mean, if, you, if you're not taking a vaccine, how much should the rest of society be willing to sacrifice for your benefit? If we have a way to protect you and you're not taking that way, um, aren't you not responsible for the causes here? I guess there's more of a philosophical question, Stu, which is, is there a case for delaying the lockdown because of the refuseniks or is it screw them? If they're refusing to take the vaccine, I'm not being inconvenienced by them.
0: Well, I mean, the problem is that screw them is also screw lots of other people who can't take the vaccine or haven't been offered the vaccine. Um, and I and, I, and I, I do in many cases feel screwed out. I and mean, there are some people who are who are you know genuinely confused about this and have have been you know picked up on you know some kind of misinformation or, or disinformation about vaccines and, and and genuinely believe it. There are other people who are not taking the vaccine and are making a big deal about not taking it for political contrarian reasons. And I mean, we're going to come to talk about those people later, I think. But there are your your political uh uh, and um but the problem is that that they're because of the concept of herd immunity they're creating a problem for people much much beyond them it's not an issue of well i'm just not going to take it and therefore it's only going to affect me we've talked about you know spreading to other people we've talked about creating new variants we've talked about all the other problems that come about from from other people not taking it so it's a bit more complicated than that so i feel like the, the the question the answer can only be like what is the thing that would stop the spread and, and cause the fewest numbers of number of deaths and if that involves you know some kind of local lockdown or whatever then it's not about you know we're we're punishing people who have taken the vaccine or anything we're just we're doing the best thing to stop the number of the highest number of deaths.
1: Yeah and it seems like at the very least all this talk around a vaccine and Bolton has led to an, an increase in in vaccine taking and a decrease in hesitancy so whether or of course um i think you gov reported this week the uk is some of the lowest level of vaccine hesitancy in the world that's like 90 percent of people would take a vaccine I, I know there was a bit of talk earlier um in the year and last year about paying people to take a vaccine I'm not even sure that's necessary in in the end what's what's um your response though daniel in terms of i don't know let's just do some more local lockdowns again let's delay the june 21 fully reopening would you be sympathetic to the government if if they took either of those steps
2: well i think at this stage there's probably not enough of a case to be to be going for those sort of local uh, lockdowns at the moment and and delaying reopening. But that's definitely a matter of opinion. And and to be honest, I'm I'm not someone who I think has enough information to make a a fairly good judgment on on whether that's actually the the right course of action. But one of the the kind of interesting things here with these vaccine refuseniks, and I I agree, I'm a very generous man, and I think we should blame both the the refuseniks and the government here. I've got plenty of blame to Go around, but one of these things with this story in the Times about um, about people in their forties in Scotland being uh, refusing to take the AstraZeneca vaccine. It seems to me like this could be at least partially explained as a kind of unintended consequence of, of some of the precautionary stuff around the AstraZeneca vaccine and blood clots. So obviously, under thirties are given the choice of the uh, vaccine, and they're able to to kind of opt out of the, the AstraZeneca jab because of these very small potential blood clot risks but that seems to have fed through into people who are maybe just on the margin over 30s or you know in their in their mid 30s and, and 40s who might have seen this information and be a bit worried about it but aren't able to, to get that choice so they're just refusing to get the the vaccine in general so just uh, an interesting side note there that it seems like actually one of the, the kind of negative consequences there is that mm. by being more cautious the government has actually ended up putting People off getting a vaccine.
1: Well, well as someone who um who, who specifically is an under thirty, went through the effort to opt in to do the AstraZeneca vaccine, both uh, through my doctor and then repeatedly when I went to the vaccine centre, they, they they looked at my age and, and looked at me and, and had to ask special questions to make sure I was aware of the risk. So it's I can appreciate that they they want to make sure people are informed if they're taking it relatively high risk. I had the vaccine. I actually had no side effects, and I at this point I'm going to say no no blood clots. It's now been. a week and a half. So I might be in safe sailing in that respect. What I'm kind of interested though, more broadly pulling out a little bit, which is how we are going to learn to live with variants in the longer run. As you've said, this isn't necessarily the worst variant, but there will be variants in future that are increasingly vaccine resistant if it has the same mutation as the South African variant. There's a lot of pressure created by the fact that you have vaccinated populations while you still have the virus circling around the population, which means that if you have someone who is gets the virus, it mutates to a, a vaccine resistant mutation that will spread quite rapidly again in the UK. How, how in your view, should we go about handling that? Is the solution basically we're going to have to accept lockdowns every once in a while again, or do we need a, a different strategy now that, that we have vaccines?
0: Yeah, I don't think I don't think we we need to rely on the kind of blunt object of a lockdown every time. I think we uh, rely on the amazing technology of vaccines and get booster shots right so i think it's going to be um it may well turn out like the flu where older folks are used every year to getting their flu shot they go to the chemist uh, on the corner and they get their get their flu shot or the gp or whatever it is there's even a you know my parents have a drive-in service and uh, they 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 had that for their flu shot uh, last you know last year before the covid thing even started i think they were using it as a kind of dry run i think we can use the things we've learned from covid vaccine not just the actual technology of building the vaccine, but the actual administration and the and the uh, you know getting getting the vaccine out there to uh, produce these booster shots. I think we will need to have this. Not only will we need to have people who have been vaccinated with AstraZeneca. Uh, I think we're going to have to probably vaccinate them with an mRNA vaccine later in the year because I think they seem to be more protective against the South African variant. It seems. I mean, a lot of the studies are quite small, and it's hard to it's hard to say. But um, uh, I think probably uh, you know we we that that's where things are going. But I think we're just going to have to get used to taking taking vaccines more often. We take vaccines for lots of other for lots of other diseases, you know, older folks in, in particular. And I think we're just going to have to get you know get used to that as a as a kind of a standard yeah. a standard thing. It,
1: there was some there was some good news today. Reporting the FT that there's a the forthcoming study from Oxford suggesting the the Astrazeneca Oxford vaccine it, after a third booster shot creates an extremely high level of antibodies, Mm. which which might suggest that getting those third shots in, particularly before next winter, particularly for the most vulnerable, even if it's not an mRNA vaccine, might still prove quite effective and um, daniel what, what's your thinking in terms of the, lo- the longer term
2: well i think one of the things is uh, you could take a kind of optimistic view of this in the long run is that a lot of the the kind of non-vaccine non-lockdown measures that people have used to adjust to covid um, whether it's mask wearing or things like in- encouraging ventilation in indoor spaces and things like that we're just starting to really in terms of, as a society, get used to to doing these sort of things. And I think, uh, you know, a a lot of these measures are very helpful, very useful, and hopefully now more ingrained than they were at the start of the whole crisis. And these things make a huge difference, right? But but the reason I'm kind of not sure whether I'm optimistic is that there's still, you know, some some fairly widespread misunderstanding about or or lack of implementation about things like well-ventilated indoor spaces um, and encouraging things like hand washing as the primary method of, of combating the virus where of course that's not the, the most effective when compared to ventilation so my hope is that we're, we're kind of adjusting and just other basic things as well as the, the yeah. kind of flu shot style setup
1: yeah I, I think i think in the the kind of i say as kind of a medium and then a long-term plan which isn't the, the kind of short to medium term it's making sure you have pretty good water controls to restrict access from from places where there is a lot of COVID spread to limit the chance of a problematic variant in the first place, then having good surveillance, good genomics, uh, as well as having good tests and trace to try to stop the spread if when it does kind of inevitably enter the UK. And then the third step is about that vaccine updates, that there's basically a global conspiracy that, that meets the World Health Organization twice a year to discuss what should be the, the, in the flu jab which particular strains of the flu one for the northern hemisphere one for the southern hemisphere and then the, that's kind of to the manufacturers they update the vaccines they they don't need to go through randomized control trials again because they've already proven that the methodology is safe and effective and if we can apply that same kind of regulatory approach to the covid vaccines now that we have methods particularly the, the extraordinary power of the mRNA vaccine we can we can achieve quite a lot technologically just one final thought though that In what we're discussing, if we say treat it like the flu, we're still accepting here that some people die every year of the flu and then, logically speaking, some people every year will die of COVID, those people who the vaccines don't respond well to and those people who are immunosuppressed and that that's probably a tragedy, but a tragedy we're going to have to live with unless we are able to su- suppress or eliminate the virus which doesn't seem realistic at this point it seems like we're, we're stuck with kind of an, an endemic virus do so we need kind of better I, I guess communication about the fact that there will be some people die from COVID it won't be that high number but we're going to have to live with a small number of people um, dying with COVID like we accept a small number of people dying from the flu. I,
0: I do think that when, when we see the, um, the numbers uh, uh, you know or the 100,000 people die of the flu or whatever it is, you know, and there was a a talk from, there was a a lecture that Chris Whitty did when he talked about this, and I think he was just making the point that you were making there, but the way he talked about it was as if, it's fine if we just kind of let these people die, but obviously it's extremely bad and we should be doing something about that, right? We should be trying to vaccinate more people with flu vaccines. We We should be trying to and I must say, we should be trying to make better flu vaccines, which I think we're, we're, we're working on right now. You know, um, the, there are some even been some advances in the last in the last year. And so I, I find I find the, the the terminology quite weird from to hear from doctors to say, oh well, we'll live with all these people dying. No, no, we'll, we can do our very best to stop that from happening. And we've learned lessons in the COVID pandemic, which we can apply to those other situations too.
1: Well, talking of learning lessons from the COVID pandemic, let's move on to next discussion about vaccine patents.
2: The Biden administration has thrown their weight behind a WTO proposal to waive vaccine patents in order to try and increase the global supply of vaccines, which I think was a bit of a surprise for a lot of his European allies. Um, I guess first off, and the kind of the big question here is, well, is there actually a decent moral case for withdrawing patents in the middle of a global pandemic? What's the kind of role of patents in speeding up or increasing vaccine production, are they actually necessary to encourage this sort of innovation? And, and is now the time to, to maybe rethink how they operate? I guess, uh, Matthew, if we go to you first.
1: Look, I think there's something quite morally alluring about get rid of vaccine patents, and we can just produce all these additional vaccines, and, and we can solve the world's problems. I think that is a very simplistic and and quite frankly, from everyone who's who's in the the, the industry and who understands it quite well, quite ridiculous claim and also underestimates the kind of longer term costs of of abolishing patents on vaccines so to start there is no bottleneck when it comes to intellectual property and vaccines the issue when it comes to using vaccines is all about the supply of the 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 inputs to the vaccines um and access to the the skilled individuals access the machinery like cell culture tanks and bags mixing equipment filtration apparatus all these kind of very advanced quality assured, very complex machinery that relatively few people in the world produce. And now we're trying to scale up our production very quickly. And that there's, although we are producing, you know, hundreds of millions, billions of vaccines, it it can never be fast enough, at least at the moment. I think over time we'll we'll address this issue, just like we got toilet paper back in the supermarkets and the supply chains will come back together and we'll be able to produce more vaccines. Getting rid of patents won't do anything to do that. There are not vaccine factories sitting there saying, geez, I could produce the Moderna vaccine, but I, I don't have a patent to do that. And the reason why we know that is because Moderna's already said that they're willing to not enforce their, their, their patent. And all these companies are actually working very hard to ensure that their, their patents are accessible, particularly in developing countries and to produce as many vaccine doses as possible. They have no incentive to limit um, production at this point, particularly with the world's eyes on them. Then you've got to think about the longer run, which is the huge benefit, as we were just saying from COVID, is all this, this vaccine progress we've made and, and all the potential for new vaccines, in the past, vaccine development has been an extremely low-profit sector of the pharmaceutical industry. Alternative medicine, things like homeopathy, were a bigger revenue spinner for the industry than vaccines were. So the fact that we now have this potential to make a lot of money off vaccines, we should be willing to pay whatever it takes, both to ensure the immediate production but to ensure that it is a profitable industry that people are willing to invest in, in the future so that, that as Shu was saying, we can have those better flu vaccines, we can have regularly updated COVID vaccines, we can have COVID vaccines that that... Uh, work across different strains or can work across different coronaviruses. Maybe we can stop the common cold if we have an effective coronavirus broad-based mRNA vaccine. But that's going to be able to take companies investing a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort. And it's going to take them to be able to make a profit along the way to do that. You know,
0: what, what Maggie said there about Moderna was the thing that really that really killed this argument for me. They have already said in October last year, they said they would stop. Uh, so, so that is October last year, before anyone had the vaccine, they said they would not be enforcing their patents. And I don't see tons of people saying, we're producing the Moderna vaccine. Here's the Moderna vaccine. You know, um, uh, loads of these, loads of these uh, companies have allowed, you know, have, have um, allowed various countries to, to to set up to build their stuff, and yet we still see most of the vaccines being made in certain countries. And so I think if you, if you, if you read anything by, by, by people who are actually conversant with the pharmaceutical industry and not just kind of political campaigners, you do see, you do see people saying, well, no, th- there's no reason that this would accelerate the supply of vials or of, of particular bags that we need or a particular, you know, so I'm, I'm just repeating what Matthew said. But yeah, I, I, I completely agree. You can see totally, if you don't understand how the industry works and you don't really think about it, you can see why it's an alluring prospect, like, well... Why should all these companies have have the secret knowledge that will save lots of people? And then you can even, if you know a little bit about, not necessarily the pharmaceutical industry, but you know a little bit about intellectual property, you can say, well, I think there was the article in The Spectator that said, planes, you know, the Wright brothers had their patents taken away from them. And and then the aviation industry, mushrooms, and we made this, you know, uh, we had loads of progress there. (laughs) That's a different case. That's a completely different case. And, And actually, you know, in that article about, you know, about vaccines, ostensibly about vaccines, there was very little actually about the... The pharmaceutical industry. It was all about the, the the aviation industry. So in this particular case, I would be completely for it if someone could show strong evidence or strong argument that that this is a that this is something that we should be going for, and that that would increase the number of vaccines. And and in fact, there might be a there might be a, a some rationale that it might decrease the number of vaccines made if all of the if, if loads of people are sort of competing over the same res- resources to, to, to make vaccines here and there uh, instead of in, in, in kind of uh, the, the biggest most efficient places so yeah I don't see any evidence that this is going to be good I see lots of evidence that people will retweet your tweets if you say that it's good <laughs> um, uh, I see lots of people uh, being being into that
1: it definitely is a, a libertarian line of thinking suggests that the patents aren't necessarily all they're cracked up to be you know Steve Davies from the IEA is a bit of a skeptic about intellectual property I'm um, Terrace Keatley who, who wrote that arc on the spectre i think you're referring to is is an asi fellow i'm um, talking of you know diversity of opinion uh within the organization uh, about uh, this issue and i think there was a case to be made that patents should exist this kind of monopoly the government gives you on your your intellectual rights isn't necessarily always for the benefit of innovation and, and there are potential downsides to excessively long patents to excessively on copyright. Like Matt Ridley makes a particularly good case here. I don't think this is one of those cases. though. I think this is one of those cases where if you're going to have a patent system, a payment system for extremely expensive to develop and produce um, vaccines is ex- exactly what you want. And the pharmaceutical industry is, is even if you think their patents last for too long, they, they do need some incentive, particularly considering the huge regulatory costs of getting approval for any kind of treatment and um, that they, they need to have some kind of monopolistic benefit to to encourage innovation encourage that investment over time
2: yeah and i think if you look at the kind of the, the broad literature on research into intellectual property and its net benefits and costs in terms of innovation there's there is a good reason and you have just summed up why matthew that that the kind of medical and the pharmaceutical industry is the strongest case for defenders of intellectual property when it comes to knock-on effects of innovation and obviously in in all cases you have this kind of trade-off between encouraging initial innovation through um through patents various ip laws and then the the kind of uh commensurate cost in terms of discouraging follow-on innovation from um initial discoveries as a result of not being able to to pick them up um due to patent laws but certainly i agree in this case that um that a waiver is is not a good shout and i think to be honest actually the biden administration kind of realises that even if they're they're not communicating it as such. And the reason I say that is that despite all this talk of, well, you know, it's humanitarian duty, uh, economics be damned, I think that they realise that actually the kind of manufacturing bottlenecks are far more important when it comes to increasing vaccine supply. And also it seems like they'd be happy enough to settle with some kind of smaller licensing agreements rather than go through what will be uh, fairly drawn out, WTO negotiation process if they are going to pursue this in in any sort of seriousness. At the end of the day, it's going to take months if they go through the WTO channels to have any sort of impact if this is what they want to do. And going through this for months when the key issue is to do with more simple supply bottlenecks and to do with input supply and things like that is probably not the best use of their time. Um, But I think it's probably in terms of timing best to move on to our final section of the podcast, which is probably going to be our most extensive because this is one of the reasons we've got Stu on. It's COVID fictions and some of the science fictions that have resulted from the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic has brought science front and centre in policymaking. We've heard practically constant demands to follow the science, but have scientists always kept up their end of the bargain? I'm sure this is this is your moment to shine. This is this is your uh, field as a scientist and expert in the in the science the science no of science. <laughs> I mean, at the basic most basic level, just at a principle level, what, what in your mind is science trying to achieve, and what kind of benefits can that provide in society at large?
0: i describe uh, science as a as a process right people talk about the scientific method but it, there isn't really a scientific method there's a process of constant arguing with each other constant debating with each other and that is at, at base what is the what the what the fundamental process is and um, if you just took that as a if you if you just thought you know that, that that's what it's all about, then you could you would see lots of scientists arguing with each other. You would see lots of people on both sides of the COVID debate, and that would be you know uh, you might think well we've had a really successful scientific time during during COVID. But actually, whereas we've to- been talking about vaccines, whereas there's been amazing progress there, I actually see a, a huge amount of of depressing information coming from you know from from science. If you look at the number of you know the papers that have been retracted, high high impact, extremely uh, high profile uh, universities and researchers being humiliated by really low quality research, people getting caught up in ideological campaigns against things like lockdowns and so on who should know better. Uh, and and so there's this kind of weird duality of science during the, the COVID pandemic where you've had incredible progress on, on the one hand, building on lots of previous science and, and doing exactly what we want science to do. And on the other hand, you've you've had this morass of really low quality, hyped up, uh, bad research on, on on the other. But I think we can learn from both, right? So there are. I don't think there's anything um, particularly new to this. It's like uh, these are all the problems that you know I was writing about in my book.
1: And, and what's the name of your book and where can our listeners purchase it?
0: The, the name of the book is Science Fictions, Exposing Fraud, Bias, Negligence and Hype in Science. And you can get it in all good bookshops now. You can also,
1: of course, get the, the audio
2: book, which is a fantastic listen. And uh, Stu himself narrates it, which is a real treat.
0: It's me and I'm talking somewhat more slowly. Oh, that's nice. Than I would that's nice. But, um, but, you know, I think we've seen all of the same problems, up. You, the, the most egregious example, for instance, being the Surgisphere scandal, where, or indeed the hydroxychloroquine scandal. So it's all about hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, being the you know the anti-malarial drug that everyone thought would be a possibility for, for reducing COVID symptoms, Donald Trump got on board. Briefly, Emmanuel Macron got got on board. There was a French researcher who put out a really low quality paper, a really low quality study that apparently told people that hydroxychloroquine would be beneficial. Turns out that study was enormously flawed, and they'd in fact just dropped out some of the data that showed that the, the, the from from patients where where it didn't work. That people dug into that and found all sorts of problems, but it was too late. This had sparked a huge international interest in hydroxychloroquine, uh, and then you know Surgisphere, who are this uh, this company, uh, who had apparently collected thousands of people's um, hospital records, like data from 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 like nine thousand people all over the world, gave data to Harvard University researchers, showing that hydroxychloroquine perhaps was actually bad and actually caused extra deaths in COVID sufferers. The Harvard researchers published this in. The, the Lancet, one of the world's best medical journals, um, and were immediately, within about two weeks, had to retract the article because it turned out the data never existed or were extremely flawed. Um, no one actually knew the providence of the data. They couldn't access the data. They were told by their Surgisphere uh, collaborators that there was no data available to them. Uh, oh, sorry, we, we can't give you that.
1: What I found quite fascinating was that, the, I think how Claustorin was a, a really good example of this, in terms of which the science is extremely politicized i mean quite frankly whether or not a particular treatment works against or for covid or has a negative impact is a purely evidential question i have i should have no bone in it yeah. it shouldn't be like conservatives think this treatment works and, and progressive thinks it doesn't work and then they both go off into their camps and have to find evidence this is not it's 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 like applying like what right. should be like political theory style debates to what is a a like actually, you know, grounded truth based not a postmodernist debate, not a debating which you can't really get to the truth. But there is like a clear truth. We don't know necessarily what it is, but there is a clear truth whether or not hydrococcus can, can work. And the answer is probably not. We've now concluded. At the time, we didn't know that. We had to all these questions to, to yes. answer. And it, it felt, yeah, I think you're right. It did feel kind of quite disappointing that it became this politicized question. And then this happened against, uh, throughout a whole bunch of different issues throughout the pandemic, where everyone kind of ran into their, their political wings. I think masks being terrible and masks being great is a good example here, double masking, triple masking. Do you need to stop wearing a mask when you get back? Can you stop wearing a mask when you get vaccinated? Can't you stop wearing a mask? It's like the, the over-cautiousness on some sides and under-cautiousness on others just, just felt quite ridiculous. It almost felt quite tribal where we're using science as just an, another form of human conflict of, of political, uh, you know, in a, in a quite politically, um, particularly in the U.S., um, Split world. Everyone has to take a particular side on what should be factual-based questions, not political questions.
0: Do you think that those uh, researchers, those Harvard researchers, who found apparently that hydroxychloroquine was 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 really bad, you can't get into their head, so you can't know this. But I feel like maybe they felt like the result was just too good to check because it not only did it did it show some really important result about COVID, but also it kind of showed that Donald Trump was. Was uh, was was bad in some way? Like, oh, he's promoting a really not not just a drug that doesn't work, but a dangerous drug. So there's clearly like a um, a political aspect to this that has that is it's easily under, it's easily imaginable that it's actually pushing scientists to just be totally negligent and neglectful in their in their work.
2: I guess a, a question that that comes up from all this then is what sort of steps can we do to actually cut down on some of this stuff? Whether it's scientists that are injecting their own personal and political biases into their research, or whether it's the actual reporting that filters through to the general public that kind of increases some of these misperceptions? What what sort of steps practically can we take?
0: Well, um, this is going to sound strange, uh, it, it, you know, given that we've just talked about how patents are, are, are good and so on. But I think being more open about a lot of this research is super important, right? Being more transparent. It had had the, the data for this Surgisphere hydroxychloroquine study been available, people would have realized much more quickly that it didn't make sense it was obviously something wrong with it i think one of the issues that that story also illustrates is that scientists are just willing to trust each other a bit too much it's the same kind of it's the same kind of principle right is that if things are open you don't need to rely on Mm. faith and rely on trust the royal society's motto is Nellius and Verba take, take uh, nobody's word for it. And unfortunately, scientists are taking each other's word for it far too much. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're being given this data and they're kind of trusting that it is the way it is, rather than just taking a step back and checking. And I think we've had enough stories of, in some cases, fraud, but in other cases, just mistakes to to, to really push scientists to, to be a little bit more, not in an unpleasant or cynical way, but just in a, in a much more open and, and, and transparent way to just trust each other a little bit less. And then I think we can trust scientists a little bit less. And again, I don't mean that in a in a, in a kind of a um, we must now uh, deny that vaccines work or whatever. But we we need to be ha- holding scientists to a higher standard. We need to be saying you know what actually is the evidence for this? A lot of the stuff on masks would have been averted if people had said, okay, let's just step back and say what is the actual evidence? You're telling me there's no evidence that this is the case. But also you're telling me that, you know, so for instance, in March 2020, you were telling me that there's no evidence masks work, but also we know that masks are more dangerous if you wear them. It actually will cause you to get COVID at a higher rate. What's the evidence for that? It turned out there wasn't any, but, but we would, you know, we would have asked that question. All these decisions that are now being made in the US with the CDC, you know, saying if you've been vaccinated, you don't need to wear them. You know, a couple of days before that, or a few days before that, they had said, you do need to wear them, you know, and and they weren't being told the actual rationale for those decisions. They weren't being told here's why we're saying this. Now the cases have got down below a certain level. This is the rationale. Um, now the evidence. There's a new study that's come out that says this. Here's here's the rationale. You know, we need to hold our, our scientists to a much higher standard.
2: And one of the the kind of concerns that I have with the idea of encouraging people to be more sceptical of um, scientists and ask what is the evidence is that. As a as a general kind of broad principle, I think that that's certainly a good thing, but there are certain times where it manifests in, in quite obviously bad ways. I mean vaccine skepticism is a kind of classic example of this where, you know, I, I remember watching a, a flat earth documentary on Netflix and one of the um the scientists there who who was kind of refuting some of these flat earth YouTube videos was saying, In another life, these people could have been fantastic scientists because they have this kind of skeptical eye and you know they're they're really interested in looking at The evidence but of course they ended up holding a a completely you know false um, and you know fairly fairly harmless arguably belief but nonetheless it it was false Um, and I worry that the kind of encouraging a broad-based skepticism of you know the science as it is popularly understood in terms of being reported in media and pronouncements of public officials actually ends up encouraging some of this more negative skepticism so I guess my my kind of question is how we how we differentiate that sort of trying to encourage people to be sceptical? What sort of ways can can we do that? Yeah,
0: it's hard in a world where people are are not just openly sceptical. That is, they're not just they're not just saying they're not just saying, "Oh, I'm sceptical of all sorts of things, and I want the evidence. Show me show me the evidence. I'm completely open minded." They're pushing down particular ideological lines. I think those those types of people are like the, the real hardcore, you know, obsessive sceptics who are like. You know, drawing out models of the flat Earth and 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 running their own experiments to show that the Earth is really flat and all that sort of stuff are quite rare, though. And I think the average person might see their video on YouTube and go, "Oh, there are some kind of questions there, maybe." And then, but th- what we need to do as as you know, people who are actually interested in in what's real is uh, is is to, is to provide you know really clear explanations for why that is not the case. I think scientists could could do you know themselves some favors here by by not. Hiding all their research in completely incomprehensible language, they could, be doing their, they could be doing their best to communicate what they're doing, and 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 and, um, and actually actively going going after some of these uh, some of these false views as well. And, and um, a lot of the um, you know you've you've seen responses from scientists saying, "Well, that's 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 not true," and then kind of moving on rather than trying to explain why. Some of the COVID stuff is not true. Trying to explain why some of the the lockdown skepticism stuff is, is is not true, and sometimes we just have to admit that actually, you know, we don't really know the answer to to, to, to these questions. And I think be, making people more aware of that. But I think there's a broader there's a broader question though, which is making people more aware of what the scientific process actually is. Which goes back to the first question: like, where did all these scientific journal articles come from? They're not gospel. They're not from some kind of. They're not handed down to us on on, on stone tablets. A scientific paper. If you were more aware of how scientific papers come about, which is there's a kind of very human process of doing the research and there's another very human process of reviewing it and then there's another very human process of getting it published and so on, then I think people would put a little bit less stock in in, in each individual scientific paper uh, uh, and it would be more beneficial for our kind of um, our our general mature understanding of science overall. I think if you build science up as this unquestionable edifice of facts that we must never uh, go against, then I think this. When you start to see the slightest little uh, uh, chink in the armor, then people think, "Oh well, the whole thing must be, you know, it's not perfect, and therefore it, may, it can't it can't possibly be real." I think you saw that in some of the climate change stuff. Some dodgy emails from uh, from some climate scientists at the University of East Anglia. That must mean climate science is uh, is completely false. If we hadn't built science up as this, this the science is this, and and, and that you know there is this uh, unquestionable consensus. Then I think um, that stuff would have would have um, kind of come out in the wash.
1: Premise: You need to acknowledge that science, as you've said, is a process, and scientists themselves are humans, and they suffer from groupthink. I think we saw a lot of groupthink at the start of the pandemic on issues like border closures don't do anything, and masks don't do anything, and uh, all these other kind of consensus that we need to have herd immunity through general community spread of the virus and then when they come to those conclusions they then also suffer from motivated reasoning so um, one moment that striked me was Jenny Harris the, the deputy CMO sitting down with Boris Johnson talking about masks and her giving re- you know exactly what you said earlier which is her warning that if you wear a mask you know it could spread bacteria and increase your chance of getting the virus and that just seems like a, a case of wanting to, an outcome, which is to advise against masks, coming up with a reason, a logic, you know, where she's a smart person, she can come up with another reason to explain why it's a bad idea. But then then I think the real underlying issue is when you exaggerate the certainty and you use your authority to exaggerate this uncertainty, to exaggerate the certainty and not acknowledge the uncertainty. And this is kind of what I wanted to, to go into next. So a bit of a discussion about the interaction between kind of science and policymaking. I so think this is an issue which we struggle through a lot, and towards the start of the pandemic, particularly the UK government, the whole overarching narrative was we're following the science. They spoke a lot about the science, uh, which I'm sure Stu you can explain much better than Me, why is a ridiculous concept. There's never the science. Science is as not a thing. It's not a. It's, it's not a gospel given by whatever Chris Whitty happens to think today. It's it's a process involving a lot of uncertainty, and, and then it felt like the politicians were hiding behind the science. And they did this for quite a while when they started getting questioned about, well, why didn't you lock down? Was They said, well, it was the science. I'm like, well, it was what some scientists happened to think at some time and other scientists thought something different. It seems like in, in politics you look for certainty and then scientists get co-opted by politicians to exaggerate that certainty and then present that to the public as a, as a fait comply. And that works for a little while, but then it kind of all broke down and, and made everyone look a little bit stupid. When reality hits, the world is complex and we don't really know what's going on that well. And even the best scientists didn't really know what they were doing very well. And they didn't have particularly good information. You know, it's like almost like a Hayekian problem here. The whole process broke down and you could no longer depend on the science. And then you started getting all that, that kind of skepticism about COVID, about the pandemic, because we were lied to about so many things at the start or at the very least, I'm not lied to, but told exaggerated versions of what the certain truth was. And then the natural reaction of a lot of people. So, did you see that kind of flow of, of what happened in my mind, which is we went from that process of science being kind of overused in policymaking without the uncertainty to make knowledge, and then we saw a lot of skepticism about science. Do you see those things as connected?
0: Yeah, you saw the same arguments uh, being used uh, by people who were anti mask you know, later in the year, last year, or, or, and indeed now, as the the institutions, the authorities, the, the the governments were using in the early pandemic because they were so strongly uh, uh, certain about it. They, uh, you know, exactly as you were saying, they had this really strong uh, uh, view that you know you had the U.S. Surgeon General putting out a tweet in all caps saying, "You you do not wear a mask," you know, all, all this sort of stuff. I mean, that that's that's extremely strong public health messaging, and there is this tension. And I'm not I'm, I'm by no means saying I know how to resolve this tension between Needing to have strong, clear messages that are understandable to everyone on one hand and needing to express uncertainty on the other right i I don't know, actually know how we address that tension, and I'd be interested to hear what you think because i've you know I've been thinking about how to do this, and um i, I i'm really I'm really not not sure that this can even you know that this can can effectively be done uh, because as you say, science is extremely complicated and extremely uncertain in a lot of in a lot of ways, and yet we do need to communicate stuff like hands, face, space, right? That's a really that's a that's a memorable sort of. I think now I, now I memorize it. I think at the start I was having like Classic Borisism. I mean, Boris is the communicator. Yeah, that, that's yeah. what he was. It was best at doing. Well, you need to have things like that, but the problem is that it becomes kind of ossified, right? Hands are now like we don't need to worry about that. We know that that's a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of, uh, of 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 uh, actual you know spreading events of the virus. So, c- could there have been uncertainty about that? Could we have said hands? not so certain face kind of you know we're we're really certain space well uh yeah we think keeping away from people is good like that's not that we couldn't put that into a into a public health slogan so you know i i don't know how we how we address this tension of like uncertainty and need for certainty on, on on the other hand i think it might be a kind of intractable thing i know there were people in the world of like science communication doing research on this but i don't know how good that research is
2: yeah, I, I I disagree. I think we can 100% do that. We just adopt the kind of language of say the Cochrane reviews and put that in really really um, good public health communication messaging. So hands space space <laughs> dash moderate certainty in all caps and, um, as a tweet, and then we're absolutely sorted. it. As, as soon as we get as soon as we get people familiar with the various um, kind of kind of ratings from Cochrane review style. Um, publications, that will, will, will be absolutely fine. But I, I think you, you, you spoke about it briefly there, Stu, that the key here is, is that we need more research, right? We need more research on what does work for trying to square that circle of um, simple messaging and accurate communication of certainty. Um, and it could, I, I mean, for all I know, I, I'm not familiar with the literature, it could be that my hands face space face moderate certainty is, is not actually the worst solution, or it could be that it's absolutely terrible and it doesn't work. But it seems like maybe before the, the pandemic, there was, there's obviously been research in this space for, for quite some time, but I think it's reinforced that the importance of it is that, you know, it, as a scientist and as, as someone who's working on problems that affect a lot of people, you might think that the actual paper itself that you're working on is the most important thing. But actually, in terms of, you know, what we use science for, which is to solve problems in the world, we can only solve those problems if we're able to communicate them effectively. So it feels like there, there has been up until now and perhaps still is a kind of mismatch in terms of the emphasis placed on the evidence itself versus how to make sure that evidence actually works, right? How it's actually communicated and, and whether people take any attention of it at all. Um, and as someone who, I, I, I can't um, not mention this during a, a a discussion on science communication. Um, as someone who's recently released a paper on vaping, for me it's the worst, um, possibly the exception of COVID, of course, but one of the worst examples of, of travesties of scientific communication. And for something like that, it's actually the, the, one of the key things that we're calling for is relevant to what we're talking about for, for certainty communication. One of the things that we're calling for is just saying vaping is at least 95% safer than smoking on vaping packaging for example and that to me is quite a good example actually of how you know there's not that there's still some uncertainty about that final five percent and you're communicating that in the statement but you're also making a very clear statement uh, at the same time.
1: I think there's a bit of a political temptation um, and let's call this the Boris temptation which is to express kind of certainty and confidence and you can even say that, that that is admired as a quality of leadership is well, you know, I think you should probably wash your hands and, you know, yeah, wearing a mask on the balance of probabilities is probably helpful. As you said, that doesn't really do much. At the same time, though, I don't think you can just outsource responsibility to scientists and exaggerate the scientific certainty. And I, I love that the Churchillian, you know, scientists should be on tap, not on top, um, and that politicians need to be willing to admit that they science contains uncertainties and they need to make decisions. And therefore, that there is some level of values and trade-offs and, and be quite explicit about what they're doing, clear in their communication, but explicit in what they're doing. I mean, that's what we lacked at the start, as well as the kind of broader challenge of how do you make decisions in the context of scientific uncertainty? I mean, a lot of things that we now are a little bit more certain about, let's say, washing hands. At the time, that was thought to be the be-all and end-all. Um, and there was no reason to think otherwise, uh, based upon the evidence we had at the time. It wasn't clear in in late February, early March last year, that fomites wouldn't be a key way that COVID spread. Um, so I, I don't, yeah, I don't necessarily know what the solution is in terms of how politicians should then express science and use science. I mean, kinda of, kind of came to your point, particularly on, Stu, about how you think politicians should make decisions in the context of scientific uncertainty and uncertainty in terms of, of what's going to happen if they make a decision and the trade-offs that they have to make in that process
0: it's very hard to say i mean you know every situation is 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 it kind of needs to be taken on its its merits but the um you know if you had had politicians making decisions against the scientists uh, uh, or in the face of what the scientists were advising in early march last year you would have had a lockdown much earlier probably because you know the scientists at the time were saying immunity is really important we need to uh, uh, you know probably most people have a mild uh, disease and you just needs to it needs to spread through the, the country now I don't know what level of certainty they were attaching to the advice they were giving at the time so uh, you know you need to look back and see the, the specific papers and perhaps a lot of that stuff will come out in the inquiry that has been recently announced but um you know at that point it would have been really nice for science for the for politicians to say well actually this doesn't really make sense to us infecting lots and lots of people with with this uh, virus we actually want to take a step back and say well actually we will close the border or we will uh, uh lock down now rather than rather than later what's all this stuff about um lockdown fatigue people will become uh, fatigued of the of the um of the uh, the lockdown restrictions now it turns out that they, they lasted for such a long time that most people have become fatigued with them. Uh, I think certainly I, certainly I have. And, um, uh, but, 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 you know, they could have been questioning this a lot more and I don't, I, I, I don't know if they would have made different decisions had the scientists been much more uncertain at, at, at the time and and you know realistically uncertain given that this was an entirely new disease and we didn't know how it spread we didn't know what sorts of effects it was going to have we didn't know how lot how you know quickly the vaccines would appear, all this sort of stuff and um, so I think a bit more decisiveness from the politicians right from the start would have been would have been good, but that goes against this. This urge we have, this kind of this kind of standard view we have, which is that politicians must follow the science. Here was an example where, if they where they did follow the science, and it ended up delaying lockdown and, and leading to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, many 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 more deaths than we would have otherwise have had. So I think there's probably another book to be written on uh, on uh, on how we communicate this stuff and 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 how we deal with experts in general.
1: Yeah, a, a case of this that, that really comes to my mind was the decision by the U.S. by Australia in particular to to shut. Borders to China at the first of February. Now that was probably a little bit too late, but if anything, particularly in Australia's case, saved um, the country from a, a huge number of infections was was going ahead of what the World Health Organization recommended. Was heavily criticised as intrinsically xenophobic. Was not the expert consensus, but it ended up being um, a kind of gut-based decision and an instinctive decision by Trump by Scott Morrison to to shut the borders. And that decision was brilliant like absolutely brilliant it was it was it was the best decision they could have made it didn't work in the u.s case whatever but did work in australia's case because of just kind of timing and dynamics factors behind it so thinking about that is like a case where the scientific of consensus was wrong the group thing was wrong the motivator reasoning was wrong and they're willing to make a different decision so it clearly shows you've got to be really careful and and, and thought full about how you use science in policymaking and and how you use the experts that are presenting before you but on that note, i think this has been an, an excellent discussion so thank you very much um, for listening to today's podcast my name is Matthew Lesh. i'm the head of research at the asi you've been listening to our uh, head of programs my co-host daniel prior as well as our special guest dr Stuart ritchie who's a lecturer at king's college london as well as an excellent author of a fantastic book called science fictions if you've been enjoying the podcast Please do subscribe and we'll be back in your ears next week.